0: You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's Word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. But today we continue in our series, Genesis 1-11, through looking at the origins of, of all things. We moved from... Uh, some uh, weighty topics uh, such as uh, manhood, womanhood, marriage, and sexuality last week uh, into some lighter topics such as sin and rebellion against God uh, today. Um, <clears throat> but um, uh, as, we, as we continue through Genesis 1-11, through 11, uh, we're, we're going to be taking a break um, starting next Sunday um, to, uh, to really begin journeying together towards Christmas through Advent. Advent is a time of waiting, uh, and particularly waiting uh, on a Savior. And and we practice Advent not because we're uh, waiting on the birth of a Savior, but we're waiting on the return of a Savior. And while we wait for his return, we remember his first coming. Um, And and we're going to be considering uh, the Gospel of Matthew, how uh, really what we're going to see today, the promise in Genesis 3.15 of the offspring of the woman who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent, how that promise of an offspring uh, is what actually begins the Gospel of Matthew with the genealogy uh, as it begins the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. We're, we're going to, to look back uh, at the promises in the Old Testament that those genealogies are looking to and what they tell us about the awaiting uh, of a Savior, and then we're going to look at the birth of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And so, uh, I'm really excited for us uh, as we spend time uh, looking uh, at the uh, Gospel of Matthew. One of the one of the things as a as a pastor, one of the least on one hand, it's my favorite time of the year to preach uh, about Jesus's birth and and Advent, and yet uh, there's a limited body of text that. Uh, that obviously speak of Jesus's birth, and so you you often feel this desire to be creative. Um, and the last thing that pastors need to do is be creative. Um, and so, uh, so I, I was just reminded as I was reading back through Matthew and, and Luke, and and just asking God for direction on on where we should go that that we can't go wrong. Just as we we uh, we soak deep in the scriptures, um, and as we do, it gives us the uh, really the picture of hope. Of joy of peace, uh, and of God's love that ultimately is uh, revealed in Jesus' first coming uh, as well as that stirs up our hearts as we await his, his second coming so really excited for us to begin that uh, next week. Uh, we'll continue that through uh, through Christmas and uh, and closing out uh, the end of the year uh, but but today we're in Genesis three we'll pick back up uh, Genesis uh, four in the new year, uh, but today. We come to Genesis 3, and in many ways, we've been talking about God's design for humanity, God's design for work, God's design for marriage, God's design for womanhood and manhood, uh, God's design for these foundational aspects of our life. And as we've been doing it, we've, we've constantly been saying, here's God's design. And yet we live in a world where we know that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. And so we're looking back uh, or or constantly looking uh, to what God's design is in light of how sin distorts God's design. So we've been talking about Genesis 3 over the last few weeks because you can't talk about God's design today without recognizing that his design today isn't experienced the way that he made it uh, because of sin, how it's distorted uh, his design and, and separated us ultimately from. From him, from ourselves, from one another, we'll we'll see that today. Uh, but today we come uh, not just to talk about the effects of sin. That we'll see that we we come to the to the actual origin uh, of sin, in humanity, of the fall of humanity, and all of the terrible and tragic consequences that fall from that rebellion. I say that it's sin and rebellion because perhaps really the best way to describe sin is cosmic treason, cosmic rebellion of God's creation against the creator. Um, and uh, we're going to see that uh, here in Genesis 3. But uh, before we, we jump into Genesis 3, I just want to take us back to Genesis two sixteen through 17, uh, to remind us what God told Adam And by extension, Adam and Eve together in the garden. Um, In verse 15, it says the Lord took man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And then it says this in verse 16, The Lord God commanded man, the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. He blessed him abundantly with all the riches of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the command that God gave Adam and Eve as they enjoyed fellowship with him in paradise. Um, God called his his creation, man and woman, Adam and Eve and all of humanity, uh, to a life of worship expressed in, in obedience born out of love for him. He gave them all of the riches of the garden and and tasked them with having dominion and filling the earth and working and keeping this. Is the, the language of working and keeping as Pastor Chris showed a few weeks ago as we looked at Genesis 2 as a language, yes, of, of physical uh, work and protection and cultivating, but also the sense of spiritual worship. It's the language that's used of the priest in the temple that they're to work and to keep. It's a language of worship that our work is, is, is to ultimately be a reflection of worship, but But at the core, what God is saying here is that to worship him means to obey him, uh, to keep his commands. And that that sense of obedience to God is born out of love, the love that God has expressed towards us and in turn, the love that we have for God. Uh, So the Christian life isn't. isn't just a, uh, a vague idea about uh, loving and doing good. The Christian life as summed up in, in Genesis here is a life of worship reflected in or expressed in obedience, born out of love. That's what God is looking for. That's what God desires. When Jesus shows up in the Gospel of John uh, and he's speaking to Nicodemus, he says that God is seeking worshipers. Um, those who would worship him with their whole lives. And Jesus said, if you, um, if you love me, then you'll keep my commands. And John, as he picked up on that, he recorded that in his gospel. And in 1 John, when he reflects on what it means to obey God, he says, and the commands of God are not burdensome to us. And meaning, not that they aren't hard, uh, in fact, all along, Jesus in his life, he said, if you're going to follow me, the life of following me is going to be harder than the life of, of following your own desires. But in following me, you'll experience life as you were made to experience it. Um, and so uh, he's saying that his, his commands aren't burdensome because we've, been, we've received God's love and in turn we love God. It's this obedience born out of love that's to mark the Christian life. That's that's the, the framework that I want us to understand the tragedy of sin and rebellion, of, of what takes place in Genesis 3. Uh, just maybe by way of uh, uh, review, a, a few quick notes as we approach Genesis 3. I can't help but uh, kind of tackle some of these topics. And the first is, uh, which we kind of looked at in terms of Genesis 1 and 2, uh, is... Is the question of the historicity of Genesis 3, is Genesis 3 historical or is this a myth? Is this just kind of a a fable that speaks to the inner uh, realities of what was going on within humanity and the uh, kind of inner dynamics that's taking place there? Or is it referring to a historical account, something that actually happened? Um, I've said it this way, uh, and I think it's a good way of saying it. I I believe that it is a historical account because I believe that I am not smarter than Jesus. Uh, Because Jesus tells us, as he uh, is teaching in the Gospels, uh, that there was a real Adam. And because of that Adam's sin and rebellion, uh, we have sin uh, has entered the world and the consequences come with it. And he's come to defeat the works of the devil through his work on the cross. And the works uh, uh, of of sin and, and death enter into the world through the rebellion of Adam and Eve. And the Bible continually refers back to Adam and Eve's fall as real events with lasting consequences. In a, in a few moments, we'll look at Romans 5, 12 through 21. If you just want to jot these down, just read these passages and say to yourself, um, is the Bible looking back at the fall of, of humanity, of Adam and Eve, as a, uh, as a mythological, uh, metaphorical, uh, reality or as a historical reality. Romans 5 talks about how sin has entered the world through one man, Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, 47-49 compares the work of the first Adam, Adam, literally, and the second Adam, Jesus. And just as surely as there was a man named Jesus who hung on a cross outside of Jerusalem on a hill called Golgotha and was put in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and that tomb is empty today, just as surely as the second Adam died and got up out of the grave, so surely did the first Adam rebel against God and bring death and sin into the world. And 2 Corinthians 11 speaks of the deception of the serpent, how Eve is deceived and how Paul is burdened for the believers at Corinth, how they might be deceived and and be drawn away from their pure devotion to Christ. He speaks of these things as historical realities grounded in space and time that actually took place because there's a real Adam and there's a real Eve and sin really enters into human history at this moment. So <clears throat> I, take, I take Genesis 3 to be historical just as I take Genesis 1 through 2 to be historical. I, there, there are people who will say that there's obviously more than just the, the historical bare-bone facts that are going on. This isn't just your Channel 7 News reporting about what happened. Uh, this is a documentary, if you will, uh, unpacking what happened as well as what it means. Um, and God communicates it in a way that's rich with imagery, but I think grounded in historical reality. And then we, we have to ask the question, what do we make of the serpent here? Um, Obviously, you know, if you've watched The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know that animals talk, right? Um, <clears throat> I, I kind of wish they did, you know, uh, in terms of, of experience. Sometimes, you you know, uh, sometimes I can hear the seething self-righteousness of a cat, you know, as it looks at you, um, as well as the faithful, loyal love of a dog. You can just kind of hear them talking to you, um, I think uh, as we look at the serpent here, uh, it doesn't tell us, it doesn't directly say in Genesis 3 that the serpent is Satan. Um, though if you have any kind of reference and knowledge, uh, I think, of, of kind of Christian tradition as well as the scriptures, um, we see later on uh, that the serpent is referred to as as Satan. I mentioned 2 Corinthians 11 three and four that talks about the deception of the serpent and the deception of satan um, and how paul is referring back to that revelation twelve nine says a great dragon was thrown down the ancient that ancient serpent who is called the devil and satan the deceiver of the whole world he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him and if you look in isaiah 14 which is referencing the pride of the king of babylon Uh, But also many see within it some type of reference, perhaps, to the original fall of Satan who puffs himself up over and against God and is thrown down, as it says here in Revelation 12 through 9, with those uh, other angels that uh, God created. Uh, We see that this serpent is referred to as Satan throughout the rest of the scriptures. Um, And so most likely what's happening here, there's only two talking animals in the Bible, the serpent and then Balaam's donkey, right, and and numbers. Uh, and 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 Balaam's case, when the donkey spoke, it was due to supernatural. Uh, Provocation uh, that was taking place, influence that was taking place. God was speaking through the donkey to communicate um, <clears throat> to Balaam. And in this scenario, I think what's happening is Satan is taking one of God's creatures, the craftiest um, uh, of the beast of the ground and is, uh, if you will, possessing the serpent to uh, communicate through him. Uh, is what 's taking place and uh, and in doing so he communicates the uh, the craftiness and the deceitfulness of Satan. I, I think this is the imagery of why he chooses say the serpent as opposed to you know the cow uh, that walks in um, because if the cow walked in, all the cow would say was Eat more chicken right um, is instead you have the serpent who the Bible speaks of one who 's uh, who's crafty uh, Jesus would talk about being wise. Uh, as a serpent, and as gentle as doves, we also see how there 's this imagery of devouring uh, the serpent devouring and we have the the, the language of leviathan and, and the and the wisdom literature that 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 there 's something about the the serpent in terms of craftiness uh, of reasoning uh, as well as uh, in terms of uh, kind of a uh, and that craftiness, a desire to destroy. Um, you know the the stories. Uh, there's there's a story that's kind of made its round through pastor sermons of a person who had a boa constrictor. You know, and they uh, had that pet, and that pet, you know, was was great. They loved the snake. The snake was great. And then uh, sooner. Uh, i can't i can't remember exactly if they if they let the snake out willingly or if the snake gets out uh, unexpectedly, but that snake that pet that they nurtured and brought to life squeezes the life out of them unexpectedly right um, and so you have this kind of craftiness with this desire to destroy, and I think that's reflecting the 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 character of Satan and his desire. Uh, to to ultimately seek, to kill, still, and destroy, as Jesus uh, would say in the Gospel of John. And and, and, in introducing the serpent, Satan using the serpent, it also raises the question of where does sin come from? At this point, through Genesis, all that God has made has been good, very good indeed. And so where does sin come from if we know that the Bible, not only in Genesis 1 and 2, but consistently throughout, says that God is not the author of evil and sin. It does not mean that sin and evil are beyond his sovereignty, the Bible teaches us, but he is not the author of them. And we see that sin and evil are clearly already entered into the world before Adam and Eve fall. Uh, at some point between the very good creation of Genesis one thirty one and God's rest in Genesis 2, what Revelation 12.9 speaks of, of, the Satan uh, puffing himself up against God and being thrown down with the angels who rebel with him. sometime in that place, uh, in that space and time, that takes place. And, and now we see that sin and evil come outside of, of Adam and Eve. It wasn't within them uh, but it comes from outside of them. And because God made them with the ability to choose for themselves with free will, we see that when presented and tempted with uh, sin by Satan, Adam and Eve disobey God's command and attempt to choose for themselves what's good and evil, claiming the authority of God rather than submitting themselves To God, uh, as God had commanded them in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2. At at its core, we see uh, C.S. Lewis has said this well. He said, If a thing is, is free to be good, it's also free to be bad. And free will is what has made evil possible. Why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. A world of automata, of creatures that worked like machines, would hardly be worth creating. The happiness which God designs for his higher creatures is the happiness of freely, voluntarily being united to him. And to each other, an ecstasy of love and delight compared to which most, the most rapturous love between a man and a woman on this earth is mere milk and water. And for that, they've got to be free, he says. To have a people who worshipped him in obedience born out of love required uh, Adam and Eve to have the ability to choose. And as we see, as they chose, they cast the lot for all of us to also choose as they did. Sometimes we wonder, would we have done the same thing if we were in their place? Uh, We can't know. We weren't there. But what we can know is that we have chosen to do the thing that they did every single day of our lives we choose to elevate ourselves above God and to go our own way. <clears throat> and so here we see in Genesis 3 how this takes place uh, and how sin enters in. To the world and to the world of humanity. And it begins with the inner working of temptation. <clears throat> we read through verses 1 through 13. Uh, so I just want to point out uh, the inner working of temptation that unfolds as the serpent comes uh, to, to the woman first. It says, we, we kind of looked in some ways how, uh, as God has given uh, the command initially to Adam in chapter 2, uh, with the expectation of the spiritual responsibility that he would tell his wife and ultimately lead and care for his wife in this way, the serpent uh, distorts that order that God has given. And he comes to Eve and says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? See, the the inner working of temptation, this is what happened in terms of uh, the initial fall of Adam and Eve. But I've uh, stated the points in terms of first person because this is indeed what happens to all of us. Uh, the, the, the sin, the temptation and sin that enters the world now um, is, is entering here for the first time, but it will be marked in this manner for the rest of time until Jesus returns. And, and it begins with the questioning of God's word. Did God actually say? John eight forty four? if you were to go look there, uh, Jesus says that Satan is the father of lies. He knows he doesn't know how to tell the truth. Because he's not of me, but those who are of me listen to my word. And in many ways, when we, when we think about how God has spoken to us, how we aren't alone and by ourselves, but God has spoken to us. It should comfort us, it should encourage us. And when I say here that temptation begins when we question God's word, it doesn't mean that that there's not room for you to have questions about the Bible. Every every day that I read the Bible, I have questions about what does that mean? How do I square that with my experience? How do I square that with what it says over here in this other passage? It's, It's right and normal to ask questions about God's word. But here the questioning of God's word isn't with the desire to understand and with the desire to submit to God. Here the question questioning uh, of God's word is with, with the suspicion that God isn't telling the truth. Not that we can't perceive and understand the truth fully, but that God's holding something back from us. And we question God's word. And then it goes on and we see how we deny God's judgment. And not only did God really say, and, and we see the woman's response. And in some ways, there's, there's a difference between what she says God said and what God said. Uh, in, in terms of Genesis 2. God said, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. She said, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Here it is. Neither shall you touch it. Lest you die. Now, that might be a fair inference from uh, what Jesus said. Probably wise, if you can't eat from it, you shouldn't touch it. Um, but there's also, I think, this implication, perhaps even uh, initially within our own hearts, to take God's word and, and, and add to it. Um, and, and ultimately, as she does this, uh, the serpent responds with this denial. And it's at this denial that is at work in every temptation to sin. You will not surely die. She denies God's judgment. The serpent denies God's judgment in speaking to Eve. And it's it's at this point that all of human history has been marked by an attempt to escape the reality of judgment. Because when we escape the reality of judgment, we don't have to deal with the consequences of sin. At least for the moment. Right? Nobody wants to face the reality of guilt. So instead of of acknowledging the reality of guilt, we deny the reality of the judge. And if there's no judge, then we have no guilt to bear. We're free to do as we please. But God is the judge, a good and righteous and just judge who has given us his commands for our good and for his glory. And when we deny his judgment, we ultimately put ourselves at peril and we, we dishonor God. And so the serpent says, you will surely not die. And here, here comes the third part that's connected to this. And in and, and questioning God's word, denying God's judgment comes, comes perhaps what, what gnaws at us the most when we're tempted with something that we know is sin. We doubt God's character. You won't surely die because God knows that when you eat of it, you'll be like him. You'll have this, your eyes open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. At, at, the, at the core of what, um, what the serpent is questioning is God's goodness. God's holding something back from you. So take and eat. You won't die. God just knows that, that, that you, you, he will, you'll, if you do this, you'll be like him. He doesn't want you to be like him. And here in this inner working of temptation, we see uh, what sin really is. Sin, when we, we doubt God's goodness... We believe that he's holding something back from us and we assert ourselves to be our own God, to choose for ourselves what's right. And wrong to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil isn't a metaphor for um, an introduction into um, into an awakening of sexuality, like some people have said. It it isn't um, uh, isn't explained in some other psychological way. Uh, what it's saying is it's it's firsthand experiential, uh, the, it, taking the authority to 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 claim and to define what is good and evil for ourselves, rather than taking God at His word. We instead assert ourselves in his place, defining good and evil for ourselves. Sin in this way is cosmic treason. It is the rebellion of the creature against the creator. It's us raising our fist to God saying, I know better. It's my turn. I need to look out for me. I need to do what I desire. <clears throat> These three realities of how temptation work, I believe, are present in all kinds of ways in our own lives. You, you name the sin and the struggle. You, you name the, the thing that you wrestle with, whether, whether there's some sense of coveting something, of, of greed, uh, feeling that God's holding back from you, so you got to get what's yours. Some sense of, of knowing that that relationship where you're going in that relationship isn't right. What you're looking at on your phone isn't right. What you're listening and partaking in and, and relationships with others. Maybe, maybe that thing's not right. There's that sense of, no, nah, God doesn't care. No, 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 I, 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 don't, I don't know what God's word says. So I'm just going to keep going. Uh, this, this, sometimes this sense of, of when we know we're about to say something in a conflict And We know those words are given, uh, that that we're going to speak them and they're going to wound the ones that we're speaking to. There's that sense rather in that moment than saying, uh, how do I honor God with my words? We in that moment, we we cast off the idea that we will we will be held accountable for every idle word we speak. Um, Even the intentionally malicious ones to people close to us. We say, "Nah, God won't hold account. I'm going to do my own thing. It happens in all kinds of ways, and my question for you is: Is how's the the inner workings of temptation going in your life? These these questions, these uh, denials, these doubts. Where are they present in your life? And 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 in asking that, I, what I'm assuming is is listen to me. I'm not saying if these are present, you're. You're, you're a bad person and these things shouldn't be present in your life. What I'm doing is I'm assuming because sin has entered the world and it's universal and we experience that these things are present in our lives. And the question is not whether they're present, but how do we respond? When, when, when that questioning of God's word comes, do we come back and we say, God, I know your word is true. I know your word is right and that in keeping your commands is life. God, when, when I feel like you're holding something back from me, that relationship that I want, that job that I want, and I'm tempted to sin against you, to, to in my heart, harden myself against you or another person in a relationship. God, I know that you are good, that you are sovereign, that you are wise, that you hold all things in your hand, that you're working on all things for my good and for your glory. I'm trusting you. I'm entrusting myself to you rather than raising myself up against you. Are we constrained by the reality of judgment? As I mentioned, the, the, the most um, perhaps common thing that we do against our sin is deny the reality of judgment because it, it tells us that we don't have to deal with the consequences of sin. Are we, are we aware of the holiness of God? Are we aware that there is a judge, that there is a day that will give an account? And that reality in the back of our minds and in the front of our hearts helps us when we're tempted to respond rightly. And in fact, we see how temptation and sin plays out just as it plays out for Adam and Eve. uh, We see it play out for us. If you look in verses six through seven, it's just you can see it in three steps. She desires, she takes, she sees and together They desire together they take and together they see. And therefore, we have this picture of how sin has entered into humanity. And what they saw was that the fruit was um, the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes. There was the desire to take it. And so it says she took of its fruit and ate. She gave it to her husband with, with her and they ate and then they saw. Isn't it interesting what the serpent said? is when you eat, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. But what did they see when they ate? When they ate, they opened their eyes not to the reality that they were like God, but to the reality that they were naked, that they were exposed, that who God made them to be, that there was a disconnect from being comfortable in the presence of God and the presence of others. Now they're, Now they're insecure. In the presence of God and insecure in the presence of others, unable to, uh, to truly be who God has made them to be. And isn't that how it works? It's usually after we sin that we see sin for what it is. You know, it, sometimes the inner dialogue in terms of the cost, you know, benefit analysis, you know, of sin—it's like in in our hearts we're like, okay, here are, here are all the reasons that I want to do this. This is going to make me feel good. I, you know, I deserve this. I've been working hard, or you know, uh, look, at least I'm not doing X. You know, I know other people who are doing far worse. I'm just hey, just doing a little, uh, just trying to get by. You know, stop being so particular. I'm. I'm it's it's just this one time, or you know what, like. I, I, I just I just feel like I need this. So whatever the, the conversation is, usually the last thing is like, well, I know God probably doesn't want me to do this, but there's all these other things out there. And then when we sin, and I, again, I, whether you're a committed follower of Christ or you're here considering Christ, or you're decidedly not a Christian. I think every human being, when they do something that sins, God has given us a conscience. And usually it's afterwards that we all go, I didn't think about that. I didn't see that coming. Or what I thought was a small thing ended up being a really big thing. I didn't think that my sin was hurting anybody, but wow, goodness, how I have made a mess of everybody's life. I I didn't think that it would affect me this way, but I can't lay my head down on my pillow at night without feeling guilt over my sin or shame over what I've done. It's just how sin works. It's when we sin, we, we see. And yet God is constantly telling us, I'm trying to tell you the truth about sin. And yet we say, no, I want I want it. And out of our desire, we take and we eat. And it's this very thing that in James 1, 13 through 15, um, we see this very description of sin played out. <clears throat> if you look there in, in James <clears throat> Chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, it draws this contrast with how God will test us to prove our faith. But how it says, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire and then desire when it is conceived, gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown, gives birth to death, brings forth death. The desire leads to, to taking some kind of action, whether it's a mental action, a physical action. We, we act on that desire and in that desire, uh, when we act on it, we see how sin gives birth to death. Just like God said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And in fact, that is indeed what we see happen. They, they don't drop dead, but they have their eyes opened to a spiritual death really a holistic death as it's going to unfold vertically and horizontally internally externally in the world that they live internally in the way they perceive themselves horizontally in their relationship with one another and vertically in their relationship with god sin brings separation sin brings death and it's this action of Adam and Eve in the garden, that Romans 5, if you'll flip there, you'll see it on the screen. Paul unpacks what happened in the garden, brought about death into the world. Romans 5, verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, speaking of Adam, And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death, here it is, reigned from Adam to Moses. Even those uh, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like that first trespass. For many died through the one man's trespass. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The free gift isn't like the result of the one man's sin for judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses... Brought justification for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. There it is. One sin led to condemnation for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the obedience of Jesus Christ, that many will be made righteous. He goes on to say how the law came in to increase the trespass, revealing and exposing the reality of sin. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That sermon deserves a whole, or that passage deserves a whole sermon that I can't give to you today. Um, but but in Romans 5, 12 through 21, we see that sin is universal because it's original. It's traced back to the act of Adam and Eve in the garden. And here particularly, the, the federal headship as uh, it's theologically described of Adam being held responsible for the command given in Genesis 2.16. Uh, we see it's through his uh, disobedience and his rebellion that Death has entered. Condemnation has come to all men. We sin because we're sinners. And we're sinners because Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. This is the teaching of original sin uh, that is grounded in the, the, the rebellion and disobedience of Adam and Eve in the garden. That means that all of us, all of us, though free to choose because of original sin, all we ultimately end up choosing is sin unless God intervenes and awakens our heart and makes us new so that we can choose obedience and righteousness. We all are sinners because of Adam and Eve's rebellion and being sinners, we ourselves choose to sin every day and go our own way. And like Adam and Eve, that means we have to face God after our sin. If you go back to Genesis 3, <clears throat> you see what unfolds as God seeks out his children. The description is of God walking in the cool of the garden. You can imagine the the, the, the experience that that must have been for Adam and Eve to commune with God in the garden, to fellowship with him. Uh, <clears throat> I, I was uh, walking back. I was working on um, my dissertation this week and I had parked in a parking garage near campus and I came and uh, I was on the fourth floor and I looked out and I saw the sun setting this week and I uh, just had to stop and, and take it in and take a picture uh, it was at the uh, at the end of the day which meant it was like three o'clock you know so the sun was setting um, I'm just kidding I think it was five o'clock um, as the sun is setting there's just this beautiful picture Uh, of the sun setting and and, and as I thought about this and thought about that experience what that must have been like to take in the beauty and the grandeur of all of God's creation in the garden and to be in perfect fellowship with him and now all of it's broken just like God said he comes to them he comes seeking them and he doesn't come uh, swirling through the garden hurling accusations and bringing condemnation he comes questioning It comes questioning so that Adam and Eve will see for themselves where they're at, particularly where they're at in relation to God. And it says in that moment, as he seeks them out, Adam and Eve are avoiding God. They're avoiding him. They hide. As the Lord God calls out, where are you? Not because he doesn't know, but because he wants them to know. They respond in verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. How far they've come from Genesis 2 25 when they were naked and unashamed. Here they're naked and afraid. Naked and ashamed. A portrait of their uh, what once was beautiful dependence on God that brought about no shame, that brought about total comfort in who they were and who God made them to be. Now totally fractured because of their, uh, their asserting independence over against God. And so here we see them avoiding God they're they're, they're trying to hide themselves from God and this this very action is what all of us do perhaps you could tell this testimony yourself before you became a believer maybe you were avoiding God maybe you grew up hearing some truths about the gospel the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection and you you knew enough that you knew if you got too close you wouldn't feel too good so it was better to stay away Some of us, we don't really want to be honest about our sin because we're afraid of what that means other people will think of us. So we try to avoid God by doing good, by playing the part. Some of us run from God to avoid him. Some of us stay close to God, but keep our hearts far from him. It was Tim Keller who said, it's true that most people in the world say they believe in God and they pray, but most people in the world do not actually have in their minds the real God because most people have a God that they can pray to when they want to and that doesn't really demand loss of control of their lives. It doesn't really demand that they change their life. He says, isn't it true that a lot of, that's true of a lot of us? And in which case, we're actually running from God and hiding ourselves in the fact that we're running from God by essentially believing in a God who isn't holy, who isn't infinite, and who isn't sovereign. We, we kind of have a God to our own liking that it helps us buffer ourselves from facing the reality of the true God, of the, of the one who does come questioning. And though he doesn't bring condemnation at first, he questions to expose where we're at. His questioning reveals that he really is the holy and righteous one to whom we must give an account. He's the one who brings the questions and it's him that we have to answer to. And so we, we often avoid God either by running away and busying ourselves with other things or, or by doing good. And it's, it's a, there's a word for us, even as believers, how easy it is for us to, to, to avoid God, even unintentionally, by busying ourselves with things other than the things of God in terms of especially communing with him and his word and in fellowship with other believers, or by, by having ourselves doing the, the, the outward stuff of God, While keeping our hearts at a distance from him. And this is Jesus continually speaks of this. He says, I would would rather have uh, have your heart. Uh, I would rather have a broken and contrite heart than all the religious activity in the world. So here we see them avoiding God. But then we also see shame. And uh, as I've listen to different different authors and and different speakers and read different uh, authors on shame I think specifically what we see happening in terms of um, uh, how sin affects all the different dimensions of our life vertically our relationship with God horizontally our relationship with others externally our relationship with the world internally our, our sense of ourselves here it's that sense of ourselves that that there's this sense of shame the sense of, uh, of 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 keeping ourselves from God, not being sure of ourselves, being afraid, feeling exposed, not wanting to to be, not wanting to reveal ourselves, so we hide ourselves. The sense of shame that permeates Adam and Eve after they sin. It's it's really it's in shame that we. We, we really struggle with the sense that we were made to be dependent on God. And when we separate ourselves from him, we have this nagging sense that something isn't right and that we have to cover up. We have to we have to hide something uh, because we're, we're not confident in who we are because we've ultimately rejected the one who made us. And here we see their their shame. But ultimately. Uh, The the sense of avoiding God and shame is grounded in this reality. It's not grounded in, in first and foremost a feeling. It's grounded in the guilt of their sin. It's not just that they feel shame for their sin. Now Adam and Eve are indeed guilty for their sin. They've disobeyed God's command. They now bear the guilt of sin because they've rejected God's command, asserted themselves in the place of God, disobeying him. They bear the guilt of sin. And and here we have Adam guilty of sin, mired in shame, doing his best to avoid God so that he doesn't have to face up to the reality of where he's at. And out of his guilt comes a, a sense of self justification because. Uh, after expressing their, their shame and their guilt. In verse 11, it says, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? There's the guilt. Did you disobey my command? They bear the guilt of sin. And the man said, classic, right? The woman that you gave me made me do it. And then in response, the woman says, it was the boneheaded man who didn't tell. No, she doesn't say that, but she probably could have. It was the serpent who made me do it all the while not realizing it's their own guilt that they need to own up to and confess. Instead, they deflect onto others what is true of themselves. And and so we have self-justification that comes out of the guilt of sin. There's always this comparison that we play this game today. I didn't sin like them. At least I'm not doing what they did. And we play this game of comparison. We, We sometimes puff ourselves up Or sometimes we we get really low because sometimes the truth is we've sinned pretty bad. And even in comparison to others, it doesn't look good. And out of that, we, we, we try to work our way out of the guilt of our sin, trying to do more, work harder, do better, trying to avoid it, celebrate our sin so that we'll feel better. We do all these things to work ourselves out of guilt. But we only can can find our way out of guilt by coming to God. And that's that's the final thing that we see is God's response to our sin. You see, the reality in verses 14 through 24 is that God doesn't overlook our sin, but he also doesn't leave us in our sin. God doesn't overlook our sin, but he doesn't leave us in our sin. In fact, we see, uh, and we've looked at this over the last few weeks, so I won't go into depth here in verses 14 all the way down through 19. We see the consequences of our sin, the holistic dimension of how sin has permeated and come in and broken uh, all the good things that God had made. In terms of us having fellowship with Him, there's now separation. and Instead of there being this one flesh union and, and there being this comfort and this confidence and the security and the relationship that God gave Adam and Eve, now there's, there's there's, uh, there's all kinds of frustrated desires and intentions. And uh, in relation to the outside world, rather than doing the good work of glorifying God in the work, we have the, uh, the, uh, the ground being cursed and, and the sweat and the toil that comes uh, through the thorns and thistles of the ground. And then even as we saw in relation to our own sense of ourself, we have these consequences of our sin that, that unfold throughout verses 14 through 19. But it's in the consequences of giving the consequences of our sin, which God doesn't sweep under the rug, he doesn't overlook, that comes the promise of redemption. It's in Genesis 3.15, as God speaks to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, this strife and struggling between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. This is something that goes beyond just Adam and Eve in the moment. This is looking forward. He shall bruise your head. Ultimate crush, an ultimate blow, and you shall bruise his heel, a temporary blow to the offspring of Eve. And it's this promise of Satan being defeated through the offspring of the woman that the rest of the Bible tells the story of waiting for a child to be born. A child who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The promise of a child that will come to fruition when Mary and Joseph are called to go to Bethlehem for the census. And there in Bethlehem, in an inn, a Savior is born, wrapped in swaddling cloth. It's the promised child. The first gospel, as the church has called Genesis 3.15, comes in the midst of judgment, but holds out the promise of redemption. And as it goes on, it says in <clears throat> verses 20 that the man calls his wife Eve because she's the mother of all living things. And then it says this in verse 21, the, the covering that's provided. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us and knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever in the condition of guilt Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, a flaming sword and turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In Genesis 321, we see after this promise of redemption, we get this covering. They had covered themselves with fig cloths, uh, with uh, loincloths made out of fig leaves. God now, uh, most likely, this is the first sacrifice of sorts in which uh, the skins of animals are taken to clothe them. It's a physical need that they need security and protection. But it also speaks to the reality of the spiritual provision that God is going to provide, that he's going to cover their sin through sacrifice. The the law will tell us that there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And it's in Romans four, as Paul reflects on the guilt of our sin, that he says that we overcome the guilt of our sin, not by working and doing more, he says, it's not to the one who works, whose wages uh, are counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteous. Just as David speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from the works of the law. He quotes from Psalm 32, verses 1 through 2. And as I say this, and Jake comes to, to close us in worship. Listen to this promise, this blessing that God holds out to those who don't work. But who believe in Jesus, blessed are the ones whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Blessed is the one whose sins are covered. The only way out of the guilt of our sin is by our sin being covered. By another, by Jesus, who goes to the cross and bears the judgment of God against our sin, which we deny. And he, in speaking the words of forgiveness and the words of restoration, holds out to us life, an expression of his very goodness, which we doubted. He speaks a true word to us, a word of forgiveness. At the beginning, we say, what is we said, what does God want? We said he wants a life of worship expressed in obedience born out of love. <clears throat> Since Adam and Eve's fall, that isn't possible in and of ourselves. Because only God can provide us with what we need. God wants obedience born out of love, but only God can provide love that's born out of grace. When he covers us our sins and in grace forgives us. He enables us to truly love him and for our love for him to be expressed in obedience to him. Listen, the only way out of sin is to turn from our own way and to believe in Jesus who covers our sin, both initially in our salvation and continually throughout our life as believers. It's God's grace that beckons us To repent, to turn from our sin, and to believe in him throughout all of our days. And that's the good news of the gospel in the midst of the tragedy of sin and rebellion. Let's pray.